happened. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, welcome yeah. to Law Librarian Conversations on Blog Talk Radio, the podcast about all things law library, legal bibliography, and the law library profession. Thanks for joining us. Hey, okay, so here we are. This is uh, day two of uh, Blog Talk Radio, Law Librarian Conversations, the wrap-up from Philly. We're live um, on the, the scene in the Philadelphia Convention Center. Oh, um, I'm your host, Richard Leiter, um, and we are <clears throat> we are surrounded by a bunch of luminaries who we'll get to and and uh, introduce sh- shortly. Uh, and there we go, the, uh, Jim Heller. Uh, one of them just cracked a, a cool one over there and carrying a plaque. What did you get recognized? Is that what it is? Okay, so but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, joining me here up on the uh, panel uh, to my right, not that it matters to people listening, uh, Sarah Glassmeyer, um, I guess currently at Cali? Currently at Cali, soon to be at Harvard Law Library Innovation Lab. That's right. She's, <laughs> yeah, she uh, cheers from the uh, Harvard people. And then we have a relatively newly minted uh, director off to my right, my uh, longtime co-host, Roger Skalbeck. Yep. Glad to be here. Joining us for the second day of the conversation, and let's uh, get this thing started. And uh, Marcia Doherty Baker manning the chat room yeah. and co-hosting, and she's actually our main PR person. So to the fact, to the um, degree that we have anybody here at all, I attribute it all to Marcia. Ken will be here tomorrow for the first half of the show. Ken, is, is that yeah. proper? He's, he's uh, waiting me back. Uh, the show tomorrow. He's busy right now. He can't find time. For yeah, everybody's too busy for this thing. So, <laughs> anyway, so let's get um, let's get started. Um, we can go around the room and introduce everybody. Oh my gosh, we've got a whole um, no. We've got two <laughs> candidates. I'm, I'm surprised. I looked up. Okay, we're we gonna have a little duel here or a, a debate, maybe. Yeah, there we go. That's the way law librarians do it, uh, the competition. Yeah, and you both have got, uh, and, and, um, and just, we don't, we're not getting any sponsorship, but it is Yingling uh, beer, which is not Chinese beer, I come to find out. This is local, ancient uh, Pennsylvania beer. It still surprises me. Oh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right, well, um, so let's uh, get started with, um, we have probably the, the highest ranking, most important person in the room. Um, in fact, I should probably stand up as I say the name. <laughs> um, we have uh, the superintendent of documents. Um, she's easily the most important. I mean, we are law librarians. Okay, so take that three-letter word, law I mean, you take the superintendent of documents out of it, and what have we got left? You know, nothing. So anyway, she's the one. She's the the man. No, so she's the woman. So so Mary Alice, we're really happy to to have you join us. Come on, scoot up a little bit closer. I want everybody to be able to hear everything. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure why I'm here. I'm not sure what you want to know. About well, we want all well, all of the inside scoop about the superintendent of documents and what you do. No. Was there some what, new digital preservation uh, thing announced today? Yes, we talked about that. But let me jump back okay. to the fact that in, in December, Congress changed our name from the government printing office to the government publishing office. Now, some people may not think that's a big deal, but... Truly, it is a big deal for our agency, and it really reflects the fact that agencies are printing so much less, and what they print, they're printing so many fewer copies, so now we're a publisher, and we do apps, uh, we do create some websites, we have our federal digital system, we're trying to get more digitized and put into it, and... um, and, you know, Davida Vance Cooks, our director, is transforming the agency, and we're working on transforming the depository library program as well. So, 
you just raised so many issues that are um, near and dear to my heart. It's Great really fun. Right there. <laughs> huh? Exactly. That's an elevator talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, you identify yourself? I think everybody should. Yeah, so that was uh, Greg Lambert, one of our... He's actually been a long-time uh, panelist on the uh, the show forever and ever, even before you were at your current yeah. place. Around. Yeah. And, and so, okay. So Greg is uh, uh, your current... Are you a current board member? No. no you're a I'm candidate. Okay. Candidate for yeah. president of so, so it, I mean, in all fairness, they can't run if they don't know what they're running for. Well, okay. Yeah. So last year, I kept thinking that you were on the board, and I was mistaken. You're just so important that it comes off that way. But, but we can't. But I don't want to say your name too many times or give you too much recognition without uh, also recognizing. Diane Rodriguez. And where are you? Oh, San Francisco. I'm at San Francisco Law Library. Yes. How long have you been there? Well, only since December. Is uh, that right? Prior to that, I was in private law libraries for 15 years. In? But in San Francisco. But prior to that, I was at the San Francisco Law Library as a reference librarian. So I've gone full circle and come back. W were you there when I was in San Francisco <laughs> at Littler? I don't know. When were you at Littler? <laughs> I was there from uh, 88 to 91. Oh, yes, I was. I moved to San Francisco in 89, and I started time. working in all it libraries in 89. It is a small world. Yeah. Yes. I used well, to be at the Bank of America legal department then. Oh, is that right? So, mm -hmm. Yeah. So we were, our buildings were actually categorized. Probably waved at each other. Or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, so so we have the two candidates, or two candidates, and what are you running for? No. I know. I yeah. know. They're both running. We have two. I mean, these are one of the two of you is going to be our president, vice president-elect next year. Yep. We might write your name. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, no. no, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's not a chance. That's not going to happen. That's like, and uh, back there heckling, that's uh, Frank Hodak, um, formerly a law librarian. Right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's, uh, but he's also kind of offending me right now. <laughs> that blue L.A. hat, I mean, come on. I find that offensive, too. Yeah, I know. Right. You're, I mean, <laughs> but anyway, but it's good enough. I, it's true, but we're we're chasing, we're gaining. We have an hour yeah, yeah. show. So I, well, okay, okay, okay. 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 Let's get to it. There really right. is. Okay, yeah. so we have another um, yeah, uh, person so who's here, uh, Jason, Jason Williams. Wilson uh, from Josephville Publishing. I don't know why I'm here though. Well, well uh, it's because we're here. It's, it's, is it because of Greg? Yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> no, actually. Estonians, he, okay, just so that everybody knows, we're on the record. He has written one of the funnest articles about Most fun, I think blog posts. Correct. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right. Whatever it, uh, but it's a terrific um, um, blog post article yeah, just a blog post. about yeah. uh, legal research. Um, and give me the name. Secondary again. sources are like cheeseburgers. Yeah, secondary sources are like cheeseburgers. If you haven't read it, uh, dig it up and and read it. I make my uh, advanced legal research uh, students read it, or I read it to them, uh, depending on how. Can you censor it. It's really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's, you it's, don't have to censor that. Uh, yeah. So anyway, it, it, uh, Jason is um, a great uh, writer about legal research and, and legal bibliography. So and the legal publishing industry. And the legal yeah. publishing. You know, in an industry that doesn't like to talk about. Right. Yeah. Except unless it's trying to sell you something. Exactly. Are you? What are you trying so, to sell? Nothing. Okay. So <laughs> actually, I have a I have a question tying you into it. You're you're saying why, Jason? Are you here? And this ties back also back to Mary Alice. Well, she's so, a publisher now. Well, exactly. <laughs> she's a publisher now. So, exactly. I mean, you have two vendors on the panel. We do have two vendors on the panel. Absolutely. Well, so, it's, uh, although although what what, yesterday, <laughs> yeah, our our guests uh, Ed uh, um, Walters from Fastcase and David Perla um, sort of made the argument that. Um, Law firms were becoming publishers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, well. Yeah, I did a... Uh, I don't know, maybe we're all publishers. I did a talk in Canada in May on the future of legal publishing, and uh, my cohorts from, from the UK and Canada 
I'd raise the point that a lot of large law firms are entering the publishing space, whether for their clients uh, or for themselves, and they were building out their own set of tools and, and reusing their knowledge in a way that was advantageous. No, so it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I think the future of libraries is publishing. You really want to throw a controversial statement out there that because we're not getting what we want from some commercial publishers and because what we deal is in is open access, open public domain materials, why not libraries take control and do the publishing ourselves? Sure. And that way we can make it the way we want. Yeah, I'm just waiting for libraries to open up 50 state service. That would be <laughs> <awesome. laughs> That would well, be <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you you opened your you opened you up for this. Did. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, hold on a second. Hold on. Rich has we, some important news. It is a commercial cool. tie-in, but yeah, uh, yeah. So, he's connected to this. So at at eleven o'clock this morning, I, we it, uh, introduced the beta version of National Survey of State Laws, seventh edition, at uh, Hein the Hein booth. It is going to be available starting in. Um, uh, September of this year, both in print and online, it's going to be terrific. So I've uh, been working on it for a year or two, and really happy to do it. So yeah, I'm mentioned I'm 50 state surveys. I'm always impressed with efforts like um, at the summit. Um, you know, the same sex, same sex marriage.com. You know, this idea that you, you have a single source website to hear all the same sex marriage laws. Yeah, well, not only in the United States now it's pretty easy, but you know the world. So with just a real quick little anecdote, when I was doing the um, National Survey of State Laws, we, we used the July 1st cutoff uh, as the, the end, you know, when we would sort of wrap the um, seventh edition, and it was the day before that that the Supreme Court released their decision. So we had already had a chapter in there, the chapter's called Annulment and Prohibited Marriages. Originally, it was designed to to talk about the differences among states on who you could marry, you know, your second cousin, third cousin, that kind of stuff. And then over time, we had to add prohibit uh, same sex as a prohibited marriage as states started adding that to their statutes. They didn't ha actually have it before. It's relatively new innovation. And then on the last day that we were going to cut it off. The, the decision came out, so my wife, who was, was transcribed inputting all the changes, had to go back and change all 50 states. Just delete, delete, delete. Boy, you have no idea. Yeah, no, she worked her, her heart out. Anyway. So uh, I've, got, I've yeah. got a question here that ties in you as publisher, you both as firm librarians, and you as provider of this information on the GPO side of things. Um, so what should we be doing in terms of relying on XML access and automated access to bulk data and the government as provider of information in terms of packaging it in, say, an O'Connor's, you know, published book that you're having on desk books and things like that? What should we be encouraging law firms and um, individual consumers in terms of their direct access to the official sources? And how should we be thinking about what we as librarians should be doing to pull these things together to understand what is the difference between the sources and where are these areas for opportunity for us to start thinking about how are we differentiating the tools that we have available in terms of value added as well as just direct access to things like FedSys and other sources like that? That's a multi-part question. That is. You got anything you want to. It just came right out of your brain. Exactly. They would write it down. Yeah. So any part of I'm trying to figure out how do we sort of connect all of this in terms of this. Um, and we have other people who have come in. I'd like to sort of bring into the conversation, starting with you all. Right. So I would. Sources of government information. I'd say academic and private develop the taxonomy. Okay. Yeah, and the structure for documents that might help facilitate. Like for us, yep. we can take any XML and figure out what to extract out of it and, and, and get it back to you in whatever form. I want XML. I can get XML with more tactics. Um, because uh, cleaning up data is very time consuming and can be quite expensive. Um, Bulk data from, from the, the publishing office now I mean, 
fantastic, right? I mean, Thank there's you lots, very much. lots you can Thank do with you it. Very much. So you've been in this for a few years. What what did it used to look like, and what does it look like now in terms of how far have we come? Um, it's fantastic now. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm we're in Texas, so we've had direct access to our statutes uh, for a number of years. They post the bills. It's an FTP site. We pull them all down. We have a system that basically just takes all that data, it's marked up, and then it's married up with our content system. And it's all different, so we can see the changes, and then we give that back to our customers. So it's a very streamlined process. Good. Um, the years passed, that was all manual. <laughs> I mean, uh, cleaning up HTML documents, or just printing bills themselves and keeping it all in. Well, it's part of GPO's transformation, absolutely, and we do want to provide that official, authentic version for the people that want that official, authentic PDF, and we want to make it available for entities such as yourself or anybody else who wants to mix to match and put things together at value. So it's a, it's a good partnership. No, I, I yeah, I've been real happy with, and particularly like changes from Congress.gov. Mm -hmm. you know, the ability to get certain aspects of uh, traffic right. legislation. It's just easier to mark up that content and follow. And I just want to say, since you mentioned Congress.gov, where do you think they get all their data from? Exactly. Now, I will throw in a, a caveat. Um, as many of you know, I worked with the Oklahoma Supreme Court for a number of years and, and helped develop the OSCN uh, website that they have in Chester's. Statutes, cases, goes all the way back to 1890. We get it in, uh, you know, vendor neutral citation. It's the official post. So I thought, man, this is great. This is like, you know, where we need to be. The state is, is, you know, putting putting its information out there. It's making making it where you can cite to it, and it's official. And then this year, it became a political tool. So the legislature in Oklahoma, because they were under a budget constraint, threatened to slash the funding for the publication. And even though it was, they had adopted that this was the official citation, or these were the official documents, they were about to you know, cut off their own nose in order to try and save a few dollars. Wow. So then it, became a, it became a political tool. So. Well, no, but I'm pointing at Mary Alice because um, a lot of people here, in fact, let's do a poll of how many of you know what the revolving fund is of the GPO? Now, how many of you have heard of it? Got you, what do you know what it's, what it's been used for? Yeah. 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 Well, so the revolving fund, uh, when I heard about it and the, the Congress was uh, going to just eliminate it. Just right. the, House. the House. The House. Budget Committee. Yes. And, and so tell us, Mary Alice, what, what is the... Uh, well, the House stripped it out down to zero and the Senate restored all but one million dollars. And, and so why is it important? Well, the there are three types of appropriations. And basically, the government printing publishing office. Testing everybody. We have to bring in our own revenue. So the first part of our appropriations, the largest, is called congressional printing and binding. Congress is our number one customer. Okay, and that's about seventy-five million dollars a year. The second piece of it is uh, for the information dissemination programs of the superintendent of documents, the mm -hmm. federal Cluster library program, cataloging and indexing program are the two most important ones. And the third is the revolving fund, as I was telling you about yesterday. Right? And it's used for? It is used because our only income, that's all we get in appropriations. We have to earn everything else. So we have 102 elevators in the two red brick buildings, and we have a There's lot of a work. trivia question for all yeah, you trivia buffs. How elevators. many elevators at the superintendent? So the revolving fund is for uh, updating our facilities, keeping them nice, uh, repairing elevators that don't work, freight elevators, for example. And um, importantly, over the last few years, about four and a half million of that has been earmarked for the federal digital system. Federal did fedsis. In other words, Congress was eliminating all 
appropriations to develop Fed system. The House. 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 The is everybody appalled at that? I mean, FEDSIS is one of the great resources that's being developed by the government. If if it had been zeroed out and there was no development, I would have been really. But we're on the air, so I won't say. But uh, but you know, but I would have been really annoyed at at that. And it's really important. So we AALL did help you out, and we got a. Campaign, letter writing campaign, and we were very uh, restored. grateful for all the library associations, including AAAWL, for always being on the lookout and coming and doing the big advocacy campaign. And we, we appreciate all of you for your help. Yeah. All right. Trivia time. Actually, getting back to your I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. And answer this question, then we're going to turn to trivia, and okay, we've got a great. few more people in the audience who have joined us who we've invited for the conversation. Okay. Please. So, just getting back to your original question yep. um publishers and uh, secondary sources and things like that, I think that it has to be a big combination of all these things for various kinds of users because now working with the public again, in private firms, everyone loves your publication because they're concise and put together. And then librarians, we want to use the GPO documents and websites and things. But with the patrons that come in from the public, they don't get any of this. And so the librarians then have to develop publishing tools to help them access yeah. everything. So it's just so multifaceted. I don't think we can have one without the other. And so when when librarians are developing those publishing tools, what kind of things well, such as live guides, um, yeah. those are really popular because you can access them from home as well as right in the library and see what we've got. And we can link to the um, primary sources. We can link to secondary sources if we have that kind of a license, or else at least just tell people that we have them and get them going. Yeah. yeah. And then let's, um, if, if it's okay with everyone, what I'd like to do is turn to some trivia questions. We did this in our first episode um, yesterday, and we're going to do it today. And I'd like to also invite, is it Dan or Daniel? Uh, Daniel. Daniel Lewis, um, do you want to bring your chair? And anything in sort of this half, half circle here, if we talk loud enough, I think it's all going to be picked up on the podcast. We've got about a little over half an hour left to go. Open conversation here. Um, so Daniel Lewis is closer. from Ravel Law, who um, is a uh, provider of uh, new ways of, of looking at and understanding the law and a uh, pretty innovative platform and some really cool tools in terms of judicial analytics and things like that. So introduce him to sort of in incorporate that. I've got topics here. These are copyright 1986 from a publisher out of Ohio. Um, the <laughs> topics are crime and punishment, history and legalese, law and the arts, our constitution and personalities, all right? So um, I'm going to read off uh, the first question here. Uh, crime no, and punishment. Being rated on how many correct answers they get. <laughs> <laughs> these are not graded. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you yeah. first then. There. Uh, <laughs> All right. Which of those topics would you like? Um, what, what were the topics again? Crime and punishment. The middle one. The middle one. Law and the arts. Okay. How did how did Rumpel of the Bailey refer to his wife? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> Who must be obeyed. Oh, oh, hold on. She who must be obeyed. Hey, uh, look at that. Excellent. All right. Well done. Now, who was it that answered that? That's Ed Hart. Ed Hart. All right. Okay. Thank you, Ed. Yep. Okay. Who was the Supreme Court Justice who developed the practice of judicial review? Ding, 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 ding. Ed, Ed wants to answer in the back, but he's holding back. Judicial review, Supreme Court Justice. Speak up. John Marshall, we have another good answer. Oh, we need to correct these here. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll call the um, editors at the uh, publisher in We need Ohio a pocket part for these, I think. Yeah. Exactly, absolutely. And is the right. case Marbury v. Madison? Does it say what the case is? It does. You know, that is a good question. It does not say what oh, the case is. Oh, and we should also say the copyright date on these cards is 1986. Right. They're, they're old. Any new thinking on that? All right. Oh, oh we asked that one yesterday. They've gone down in value now that you've cracked them out. Yeah. They certainly no, I do have. I do have one wrap. Exactly. <laughs> All right, one more, one more, and then I'll throw it open to, I have another topic to discuss, but I also want to get all of you to, uh, to get in here. Um, 
Blue sky laws legislate what area of sales? State securities, very good. Excellent. All right. So, Rich? So, Daniel, you want to tell us how's the conference going? Conference has been great. I think uh, two of the themes that we've been hearing are people coming around saying, man, lots of people are doing analytics this year. Why? And the second thing people are saying is, uh, what you guys are doing really seems to resonate with all of these kids. What's up with millennials? Uh, so those are sort of two of the themes I think we've been hearing. Mm -hmm. um, and analytics was fun because I think uh, information providers have started to push the envelope such that people are able to ask new questions that they weren't able to ask five years ago and can now expect to have actual answers based on data. And they're seeing that you can do that in other sectors uh, and they're saying, why can't we do it in the legal space now? It's true. Well, it seems like, I mean, this is obviously a huge trend. Firms are starting to look at internally, like how can you make you know, maximum efficiencies? How can you understand things? Like the prediction market for, is this a good lawsuit to go into? You know, is my patent going to be you know, accepted? What's the you know, reviewer going to do? There's a ton of tools out there. And I think it's a fantastic world. What should we be doing? What should we be thinking about as critical um, players in this world not understanding the algorithms but wanting to reap their benefits. Well, interesting, it's not just primary law, but I, I think a lot about predictive analysis on committees, um, you know, at the federal level, uh, and reporting certain bills out with certain types of content. And there's just what they're doing, um, and a few others, is this idea that there's a lot of metadata stored um, in this content that we just haven't exposed yet, and largely because it's been locked down in some really inaccessible form. Yeah, if you look at, like, there's this company, Fiscal Note, they've got this platform called Prophecy. I mean, they're trying to say, like, they can, they can predict the outcome of bills. I'm skeptical. I mean, prophecy in itself is sort of one of these, you know, the FCC, or the, the FTC might start questioning whether that's a really a valid kind of framework and description of this, but maybe not. I mean, what do we think? Should we be trusting them, and how should we be approaching these these predictive algorithms and a new way of understanding and learning about the data? Well, I think, like you said, there's a lot of information that's been contained in these documents that hasn't been surfaced before. And so, one of the one of the algorithmic things is, well, how do you actually extract information from documents? Then there's a separate piece of how do you then package that up and find statistical significance from it. But I'm sorry to interrupt. I don't want to break the flow here, but before um, Jim uh, gets away, I did want to um, invite him to. to we, one of the, the things that we wanted to do in the show is wrap up and find out about real life experiences here at the conference. Jim has got a rich, and as well as uh, Frank, as a former librarian. Um, well of, of information about how to do yeah, these things. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, what, what's been the funnest thing that you've uh, found to do here at this conference or tips that people should know or take away about how to do a conference? How not to do something. Don't go to a baseball game with 95 degrees. Uh, All right. No baseball at 95 degrees. All right. It, how about, Frank, is there any... Um, before you get away, we just got a, you're our history man, our double yeah. A double L history. Is anything notable happen on this day in double A double L history? <laughs> or or something that you want to share? Not, what? I said I can tell you that anything's happened on baseball history on this day, so probably not AAL. No, I, in response to your, your question about, first of all, retired, now officially retired, not a yeah. law librarian, not a law professor, and, and actually and, out of... And, and for the people that are listening to this, I just have to say, I mean, that's the longest uh, yeah, well, list of ribbons. I mean, it practically comes down to his knees. It's pretty <laughs> impressive. No, I'm kidding. I'm going for that record. <laughs> yeah. uh, and out of, the, out of the law library for, uh, for uh, eight years now, so yeah. uh, it's been a while. But, but nevertheless, I still enjoy the conference. Uh, and quite honestly, the thing I enjoyed is I walk. I haven't been to a single program except the one I did. I'll do one tomorrow, but that'll be two. Yeah. Uh, but I walk around the hall, and I purposely 
do not talk to the big people. They get lots of folks talking to them. And, and, but I talked to all the little people. We all and, were five, seven, or eleven. <laughs> 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 How about you, Jim? <laughs> talk to these smaller vendors, so they put it that way, and especially the first-time vendors. Um, in part because, um, like it or not, uh, this association uh, depends a lot on those vendors, and if they all go away, either our the registration fees are going to be way up here, or the conference is going to be way down there. So it's important that the vendors continue to feel like it's worth their while to come, and for them, bottom line is talking to folks. So um, I like to do that. But also, even though I tell them right from the get-go. It says retired. I have no authority to buy anything. I can pass words on. They're always willing to chat with me. And the conversations are always fascinating. I've learned so much about uh, new products and, and new ideas and new ways of doing things. So I, I strongly encourage people to do that. I, I, I see a lot of folks walking around that hall and studiously avoiding talking to vendors. And I just think that's your... They're not going to You're bite. Missing something. They love to chat with you, and yet it's almost always a lot of fun. And plus, you get like three pins and all sorts yeah. of stuff like that. So, cave tape. Cave tape. All right. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. You know, and and, and just this is, Mary Alice is here as the superintendent of documents. Makes me think. And then you, I, you, I don't know if you remember, but. It, Frank taught me almost everything I know about oh, compiling yeah. legislative histories. Yeah, you were at the L.A. County right Law there. Library. <laughs> what? <laughs> I almost quit the profession. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, so did I. No, it was, uh, anyway, thank you for that. Yeah, thanks for dropping in. Hey, All right. Fun. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And I, and I think Actually, um, to just kind of bring it together, back to um, Daniel, um, I was I was surprised that you're here. I mean, I'm pleasantly surprised that you're here. And I noticed that Ravel is actually, is it you or Case Tech that's going into law schools? Uh, or, yeah, I don't know about their plan, but we're definitely in law schools. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, student rep at our school. Yeah. 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 In fact, yeah. they Ravel uh, surprised us by one day, all of a sudden, there was a student. We had a student rep. We didn't yeah, and, and just as a, a point to yeah. clarify, then I want to, um, you know, turn the, the microphone back to you, but... But to the extent there are academic um, uh, clients and, and, and listeners out there in, in law schools, there is the opportunity for uh, students to be involved in Ravel, and there's a place on their website that if you've got there, it's out there, there's student reps. I mean, there's student reps for major vendors, um, things like that, and Ravel is now amongst them. So I think that's pretty exciting. Yeah, we've had fun because we, we give Ravel away to students and librarians and professors at schools, and it's a great way for students to get involved in a startup, and the ones who do exceedingly well as student reps come out to Ravel headquarters in San Francisco for summer, and we bring on interns and things like that. So they're really important eyes and ears, and they get involved in our product design, and obviously they help spread the word. How long has Ravel been around? As so we just got started in 2012. And that's uh -huh. when we spun out of Stanford from the law school, the computer science department, and the D school, which is the school of design. So, how? Um, what's the biggest challenge about being a startup in this business? Well, part of it is is spreading the word and helping educate people about what we're doing and why data analytics matter and what they can do. So, one of the analogies I was thinking about um, while we were hearing about the conference was how to evaluate your question. How do you evaluate analytics and what should you be concerned about? And so the analogy I could draw is I started playing baseball in the early 1990s. And back then you looked at a box score or a player stats and you had about three categories. You looked at their batting average and their home runs and their walks and their strikeouts. Today that's only the starting point. You have about 25 other stats of their wins above replacement of how much better are they than another player you have how quickly they make a break once the ball is hit. So how much ground can they cover in the outfield? And as the technology has changed, it's enabled new stats to be captured. So for today, today, for example, at every baseball stadium, they have radar that tracks every single player as well as the flight of the ball as it's hit and play. And with that information, you can calculate things like, well, how quickly does this player react? How much ground can they cover? How good is their defensive skill? Fifteen years ago, you couldn't even Imagine that statistic. So, 15 years from now, they'll track the cancer rates of these uh, players as they're <laughs> 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 yeah. 
Well, and also 15 years from now, we'll be tracking, you know, like how how many um, keystrokes did it take for, you know, a first-year associate to draft a memo and how quick were they responding to an office action from the PTO and, you know, how quickly are they researching and things and actually, like, uh, achieving results? Well, the whole, the whole idea really comes, I think it's a progression of, you know, cheap data, so hosting data became yeah. cheap. And then once the data, once the information actually became more commoditized, that it was there, I think, um, knowing nothing about Codex other than, than what I've read, that, you know, there's a number of companies that are coming out that you can tell had some data to play around with. And so, you know, then you've got, that's not an issue. You're not worried about, you're, you're not worried about the data. You're worried about what's the thing I can do with this. And so, um, and I've been complaining for years that I think e-discovery, um, there's a number of things that they're doing as far as you know, massive amounts of collection of data. Um, being able to make that, you know, that used to be a, a real big deal, and now it's kind of, you know, the, a normal everyday process. And uh, so now that's the next level. It's like, okay, that that's no longer the thing, the challenge. What's the next challenge? So it's, I mean. Again, to the, the point of sort of prediction and algorithms and something like that, I mean, do you see being at a law firm that's involved in litigation with lots of discovery, do you see that um, that predictive analytics and predictive coding in the discovery world are, are ex being accepted and, and really like putting out people from like the, the role of the sort of rote document review, kind of bringing in lots of associates to tackle big data, or? I think we're at a tipping point. It really depends on the court and the okay. judge's ability to accept that. I think I think the law firm would, would love to do it because it would be a reduction in cost over time, a, a huge reduction in cost. Um, it's a matter of you know, how do we get the courts to accept that that's something that they can they can trust. You know, they're, they're, they're probably the last domino to topple. Um, but uh, uh, I mean, as far as prediction, law firms, yeah, um, because we're being asked more and more. We have to predict how much it's going to cost us to do a matter. So when someone comes in and says, you know, I'm going to typically I do uh, 15 IP uh, filings a, a year, patent filings a year. I want you to handle all of these, and I want you to have have them at a uh, per cost basis or per per filing basis, and it could be that we only do ten, we'll still pay you the same. It could be we do twenty. So as a law firm, your incentive then is, okay, I'm not being paid by the hour, so that's right. gone. And now it's how do I how do I crunch the information? How do I streamline the process? So it's you you start changing the metrics of which becomes important. And when you do that, then innovation you know starts coming up because Whoever's innovative makes more money. Okay, let, let me. So it, it occurs to me maybe we're talking about two different types of information here too. There's the, a lot of the information that you're talking about is in discovery is not um, primary law, right? So how, how and then what what you do at uh, Ravel. Is primarily primary law or case and yeah. So yeah. How, do the what Greg is talking about that new kind of analytics and analyzing of the um, this kind of information. How does it relate? And even Mary Alice, how does it relate to the publishing and use of primary materials, which? Or, or are they two different things no, altogether? I, I think they can be similar, and so, and everyone can, and, and I'm sure Jason will tell me I'm wrong. You're wrong. You know, you're good at this prediction market. I yeah. like it. Yeah. <laughs> but you can you can look at this, and what you're trying to spot is trends in the language of what's what's going on. Um, with e-discovery, you have things that, that you want to deduplicate, things that you want to group. In, in, you know, in like packages, uh, you want to you know be able to see how certain people reacted over time. You can almost apply similar concepts to uh, legal decisions. You want to see what's the languages that they're using. Is there a trend in how they're using it? How are they do? You know, are they being 
consistent over time, or are they you know, suddenly changing? And it's you know that's those spikes or the the things the the red flags that pop up that are okay. Here's what I need to focus in on. And I think you can apply those concepts to both legal and to discovery. Yeah, I would it, say I would say real quick. Very often I'm sort of in similar spots. We're, we're small. We we have to eat what we kill. Um, we you know we have big ideas and projects that we would like to implement, but we have to go about it in sort of this very structured, slow, methodical way. And we have data that we like to get out in multiple channels to the users and providers. So, um, and I see a lot now with prediction and everything. I'm, I'm a bit worried about jumping too far ahead in that game. I, I was visiting with a vendor this week, I won't tell you, um, but they had some really interesting predictive stuff. And I'm looking at it and I'm saying, wow, they're exposing this certain data there. And I say, oh, that looks really interesting. And then you start looking at it a little bit more and say, that, that, that doesn't seem right to me. And then you look at the other things and you realize maybe it's a function of how they're extracting the information from the sponge material. So I'm a big believer in transparency. So you want to talk about my editorial processes? Editors have the book, how we fill out our research, how we write, how we do anything. I'm willing to talk about all of them and where we are and if we outsource anything. Right? And so transparency in those processes really because we have to we have to trust that at the end of the day, this predictive analysis, whether it's even on this side, it's posing counsel, I have to trust what they're presenting and getting a judge buy-in or getting a, a client buy-in. In fact, this prediction is actually working. And it's benefiting because otherwise I can look at them and say, oh, that's really cool. How did you do that? Well, in my experience in the law firm environment, um, people would want to have the information that you're putting forward uh, to find out if the case is going to be found, what's the judge deciding, how's this circuit looking at this, what kind of decisions do you want to bring it forward here? You're going to send it off to you know, counsel in another region. Um, but we also just at the county law library had a judge come in and talk about the about scientific evidence and how it's presented and whether or not it's going to be accepted in San Francisco Superior Court and he's in charge of all this and he was saying that he is really doubtful about what people are bringing in and you know you can pretty much make a chart that says just about anything and he had all these examples of pie charts that added up to 300 percent and you know, you know all these different things um, that will just you know that people try to sneak in there and play a jury but um, so the trans
um, a prediction of whether a judge may do something or not, um, which we don't do. We don't say we're going to predict what's going to happen. We say, look, here are the best stats about how to engage with that question and the right places to start looking. Um, it's well, about a starting point and saying, here's the broad picture and a place to start, so, but you might be off one or two. But I think that's great because if we're willing to, as long as we say, well, okay, this is going to be about 70%. Yeah. If we're willing to accept that, then I think we can all move along. I mean, it's sort of like, I think Michael Bomarito was involved in a paper that they presented in Philadelphia in 2012 on uh, analyzing, like, citates, you know, Shepard and Keysight. Right. And a couple other papers done, and I think the stats of what they revealed, like, based on how they characterized, um, you know, negative treating authority, they were maybe about 60% accurate uh, for both citates. It's not overlapping 60%. And so, I don't think lawyers don't consider that at all. Like, you, know, you tell them, well, did you shepherdize that? But the partner thinks, oh, well, there's no negative treatment of it. It's a perfectly fine case, right? Well, I mean, I guess if we're just all using either citator, we're all going to be about 60%. Well, right. I don't know if those stats are accurate now, but um, still, nobody talks about that. They certainly don't promote it. This to me sort of brings up, you know, just sort of a question of like, what is the attorney's duty in the process of advocacy and the process of practicing, right? So there's, you know, you need to be, there's a rule of competence and now 14, about to be 15 different states have adopted this updated language saying that you need to understand the risks and benefits of relevant technology. And I think it sounds like this is sort of a, it's been a long time in coming and this is sort of states are slow to adopt that, but it seems to me like that's a big part of it is you need to know the risks and benefits. Is 60% accuracy, whether that's the right number or not, okay? Are you comfortable enough with the outcome of these algorithms? And also, are you enabled to look at these materials, are you able to then rely on an authenticated version that ties back to, oh, there's all these fancy ways to look at it, but I can still get to the thing that's still authentic. Well, the irony, though, is that if we have to certify to our client or to the court that we're, we're trying to get as close to accuracy as possible, then now all of a sudden you're having to look at possibly using overlapping technology, right? So, or platform. So, I don't know if you guys are working on something that sounded like somebody was explaining to me is like a citator, but it sounded something to, akin to a, a similar analysis of cases, which would reveal potentially negative treatment uh, on how they talked about another opinion, right? So, I'm thinking rotten tomatoes kind of thing, right? Um, well, does that present you with a new set of data that you then have to overlap with your citator that you're using over here to then sort of generalize, okay, well, now maybe I'm a little bit closer to 80% or 90%. You know, what, what's that threshold that I have to to make sure I'm, I'm getting close to right. And it's all yeah. e-discovery is just the same because even on e-discovery, what's that accuracy using any kind of platform, even if you have human actors and you've got people in the room staring at them, how many times have they click, you know, an arrow going forward or, you know, mark something, you know, where are they looking at on the screen? I mean, it's, uh, you know, they've got all these dumb terminals and that's all they do is just look at how efficient can we make these automatons, you know, going through these documents. Uh, just real quick, we're, we've only got uh, less than 12 minutes uh, left, so we're not going to be able to come to uh, any conclusions or decide the, the data <laughs> anything. So, but We're not solving the world's problems no, in the next no, 12 minutes? It's okay. not going to happen. <laughs> but, but, you know, but, but with this conversation, it, um, this is something uh, new for me, but it reminds me of um, old uh, discussions that used to be uh, taking place at the beginning of the, the so-called digital revolution with the Blair and Marin studies. Um, I don't know if you're anybody's familiar with David Blair and David Marin studies in, I think it was 1976, and the, they were two uh, Berkeley information uh, professors who um, uh, were actually, real in a real quick nutshell, hired by IBM to um, uh, analyze the performance of full-text database searching. Uh, their conclusion after analyzing stuff, and you can look up the Blair and Marin report um, uh, on Google, I'm sure, and, and find descriptions of it. And their conclusion um, was that it was impossible to design any kind of search engine that could perform at better than 70% accuracy. 
accuracy. That it was all there was always going to be a thirty percent, you know, gap. And and there and it's fascinating to read um, Blair and Marin's uh, conclusions on why that is. But the the short version is they essentially said it's just a law of information science that will just can't be broken. And it's sort of been the holy grail. Um, it, it involves Zipf's law. It's fascinating uh, reading. Um, but but all we can do is keep trying new ways to uh, go at it. And, and uh, Jason, I think you're probably right. We It's a fact of life. We like gravity. We're just not going to all be able to fly back to our room as much as my feet would wish that I could. Well, but, can I just say one yeah. thing? One thing I really like about this conference and coming here is you do get lawyers that are our vendors who are making products. They are interacting with academic and private law librarians. Most of the time in our day-to-day -day stuff, we might only see a private law librarian. Right? But now you get to interact with academic law librarians, you get a different perspective. But you take the time out, if you're able to take the time out and go to sessions, you'll learn something. You almost always yeah. learn something. Yeah. Um, and it's your opportunity to really, like, as much as, as I might be here to talk about my products, I'm also here to learn more about what's happening out there. Because I'm not doing surveys every other week or, you know, to, to figure out how practice elements are changing um, and, and what people are up to. And it's always interesting to see people move, like, Moving all this here, and now it's public, now it's private, now it's public, you know, and those experiences in, in the wild. Sure. No, and that's why I'm so impressed. And I don't want, you know, um, like Raffle Law is one of the new players on the scene that's taking a different approach, whether you'll get, you know, be able to crack the 70%, you know, or not, or or whether it's going to be yeah. a different 70% or you'll be able to give it to people in a more meaningful way. Those are the, the cool things. And well, that's an, it's an interesting study. I'm going to have to look it up. The way that we think about the accuracy is with two sub-measures, so with recall and precision. Yes. And recall is the measure of how much of the thing did you yep. find. So when you enter a search, did you find, did everything come back that contained those search terms? And precision is, did you get anything wrong? Um, so with search, it's not a very interesting example. You can get both of those things extremely, extremely high, 100%, I would argue. Yeah. Um, with something like sentiment analysis or with head notes, you, have, you might face trade-offs. So recall might give you every sentence that included sentiment when it was talking about the thing that it was talking about. But when you're classifying that and saying, well, was it positive or negative or was it neutral, you might not get everything precisely right. That would be your precision measure. Yeah. So with those, the right measures are really, you're, well, you're starting to look at things in the 95 to 100% range. 70% yeah. would be extremely low, and that would be a pretty dumb system. But when you're looking at 95% yeah. or higher on both of those measures, then you have something that's really starting yeah. to be quite reliable. Well, and, and, and the challenge is the fact that we're dealing with such volumes. I mean, in discovery, I mean, you're, it's almost limitless, the numbers of, of documents. But even with case law, how many, do anybody know how many cases are published at West, by, by West? 10 plus million. There's 10 plus million? 400,000 new ones a year. Any other? Somebody told me two years ago from West that it was 12. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's a big uh, number. That's a large number yeah. of cases. So if if you had 100% accuracy, all of the cases involving, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, disputes about the age of majority to enter into a contract to buy a car, nobody would want that. When I talk to when I talk to the late Peter Jackson, the chief scientist for Thomson Reuters, uh, um, he just distilled it. It's a problem of language. It's two centuries worth of language. Yeah. yeah. We don't we don't talk about, and even if you just even if I were just to take 25 years of bankruptcy law, even tracing the well, language in bankruptcy law is, is complex enough. Yeah. And now I have to design design a program that can look at two centuries of information covering the development of common law, statutes, 
and tell you that DUI is the same as DWI and it's different than, you know, antitrust. But then there are the random things, like uh, there happens to be a, um, uh, a, a very small line of cases dealing with uh, comparative negligence in Indiana where the word comparative is misspelled. So, and actually, um, speaking of comparative, what I'd like to do is, in closing, and we've got about five minutes left, I think, right yes. here, I'd like to get comparative views from each of you of take away from the conference, thoughts in your mind, sort of biggest challenges you see coming up, or even more fundamentally, something really fun that we should all be thinking about doing in Philadelphia when we've got the time. So I'll start with you, Diane. Okay, well, I'm thinking that the most challenging thing to play double facing right now is the rebranding effort. Um, mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. so much going on with that. I mean, it's just so multifaceted with all the different decisions, the way we're um, looked at on the outside with the information professionals versus librarians. I mean, there's just so much going on there. It's going to be a real challenge, but it's exciting, and I hope that everybody would step up and participate. Yeah. And one thing I'd like to recommend to people is that they become mentors. Um, there's this. I, there's just so much to be gained from being a mentor. You know, the mentor. The, we need to educate the people that are coming up in the association. Really embrace them and get them in here. They should yeah. be here talking with us too. And I saw. Yeah, I saw a number of people today who said, "Hey, I'm a mentor, and this is my mentee." And I think that's great. It's I think awesome. that's a great development, and it should be. We it should do really more. It needs to be nurtured and yep. promoted. Um, plus, I, you know, as a mentor myself, I get so much out of meeting young people, yep. learning what they're doing, that's right. new and cutting in. So. Pretty exciting. Exactly. And I'd say the same thing on um, the rebranding. The, you know, if we don't stop digging our heels in on certain things, we're going to be stuck while everyone else walks away from us. So is this a matter of don't sweat the small stuff, or is that is that the wrong way? No, I think it's it's a you know don't overemphasize the short term reward for the long term. Um, and so I'm, I'm worried that uh, you know, quick victory uh, of saying, "Ha, you know, we're just going to stay just like we are for one," will end up in a few years saying, "Wow, where did everyone go?" Um, as far as positive, I think one of the things that uh, I love coming to the annual conference because I get you know to, to meet everybody face to face. Uh, it's so easy to communicate now, but it's still you know, very enjoyable. But we have such a diverse educational opportunities out there. We, we do webinars throughout the year. We, we have other things that we go to. But we're, you know, we're kind of cutting ourselves a little thin. And so we're not having that just that one, uh, one big annual event anymore. We're having multiple events. Yeah. And I'm afraid that we're going to look to say, one day we're going to say, you know, we only have 1,450 people here. You know, that's down. We had 1,900. Uh, the last time we were in Philadelphia, right? So what's happening? But you have to look holistically at, at all of the educational programs and see what we're doing. If that's if that's your focus, and say, well, no, actually, we're doing pretty pretty good, and we we can look at that as our metric to measure rather than just the one event. Good, Mary Alice, and then Daniel. Well, I was just going to build off what you said about the mentoring. I've really noticed so many first-time attendees during the event yeah. this time. There's been quite a few. Those are the people that I'd like to like say hello to go out of my way. Um, secondly, you know, in terms of what we do at GPO, we have to remind staff often don't let the perfect be the only the good. And you're not always going to reach perfection, but we have this new strategic priority, uh, right. which is this great vision to preserve all government information. And the last thing I want to say for all of you out there listening to radio, if you're coming to Chicago, one of the funnest experiences Saturday, they have an all-day double A double is an all-day hackathon for any young. Yeah, yeah, excellent, and excellent. Go and do it. It is it's wonderful. All right, we are down to a minute and ten seconds left. I want to give Daniel and Jason. You got. That's it. We got that a little bit of time. I want to thank everybody here who's listening and everybody who's come here to have the conversation with us. Last words, last thoughts? Well, this is only my second conference, but it actually, it seems quite a bit more upbeat than last year. So I'm not sure exactly what to attribute that to. It's because it was in like San Antonio. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm from Houston. So. Yeah. Um, no, it's a great conference. Thank you for the invite. Uh, I always enjoy listening to the show. So.
Thanks, everybody. Continue and, the conversation. Oh, and, and my little my little tip for everybody in the future: look for karaoke with Ken. Uh, it was yeah. last night. I would invite everybody to come uh, tonight, but it, it's one of my favorite events. Excellent. And I mean, you got to hear Roger sing uh, Johnny Cash in German. You. <laughs> <laughs> Not recorded, so you got to be there live. Thank you, everybody, yeah. and have a wonderful double double L for the rest of 2015. Happy trails. There we go. Perfect We're up. Thanks, everybody. All right. It's a wrap. Thank you. Hey. Yeah. Thank you. 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 Yeah, thanks a lot. Nice to meet you. No, good luck to you. Okay, bye. Bye, everybody. Are you sure you want to end?